All right, as I was considering this text, this passage this week, um, I was looking at this concept, this idea, what we're going to look at, a large part of what we're going to look at today is Jesus' resurrection, and then after that resurrection, his appearance to a number of different people, a different groups of people, how Jesus revealed himself to them. And considering this, I was thinking about the fact that as far as our salvation is concerned, Jesus didn't have to appear to anybody. That doesn't have any bearing on our our salvation, that Jesus could have died on the cross, he could have risen and not appeared to a single person, and that wouldn't affect one bit our position in Christ, that wouldn't affect our being children of the Most High. And so why is it that Jesus chose to appear to, to these people? Again, when we look at the cross, that is absolutely vital to Christianity, right? That is vital to our faith, that Jesus had to die for our sins. Our sins come with a burden. Our sins come with a price. The wages of our sin is death. And Jesus, when he went to the cross, he nailed the certificates of debt, which consisted of decrees written against us, to the cross. They are nailed to the cross. It is finished, right? It is done. To Telestai, those are complete. When Jesus went to the cross, he took care of our sin issue once and for all. In Romans 4.25 Paul talks about this, and he says that Jesus was delivered over because of our transgression. That is why Jesus went to the cross, for our transgression, to take our sins and to settle that debt that we had with Almighty God once and for all. But then Paul goes on again, Romans 4.25, he was delivered over because of our transgressions, and he was raised because of our justification. Jesus was raised so that we might be declared right with God, so that we might be pronounced righteous before the almighty God of the universe, that he had taken and imputed the, the perfect righteousness of Christ, and he had ascribed it to our account so that we might be considered righteous before God. I want you to imagine with me for a minute that after we leave this place, we go out from here, Maybe you do as I do, and you pull out your phone to see if anything happened while you were in here, right? Hopefully you're not on your phone while you're in here. And imagine that when you do that, you realize your phone is not working. You don't have any service. You're not getting any text. You're not able to make any phone calls. Well, if you're like me, you're going to go to the phone store, right? And you're going to try to get this settled and figure out what's going on with my phone. Imagine you show up and they say, well, your bill wasn't paid last month, so we shut off your service. And... It's at that point you realize, okay, I don't, I don't know what happened. I was set up for auto pay. Um, must not have gone through, but I took those funds and I did something else with that. I can't pay it, right? And at that point, a good friend walks in. He pays your bill. He settles all your debt with the phone company. And you owe no more, no more fines, no more fees to your cell phone provider. Well, just as you turn and start to skip out of there and, and walk away all gleeful and, and joyous, the, the sales rep says, well, hold on, you need to wait because you've, your friend took care of your, your debt from last month. You don't owe us anything, but your service still isn't on. You need to pay for this month's service in order to have use of your cell phone. And then just to round out the, the illustration, your friend, uh, we'll call him Jesus, he steps up and he pays that month's debt as well so that you can have service for the current month. Uh, 
this while being a, a fallible illustration, like all illustrations are, illustrates the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he not only took care of the sin debt that we owed, and he brought us back up to uh, a, a zero balance, so to speak. We didn't owe anything to God who, um, who we do owe for our sin, right? But he also gave us his righteousness. We need to not only have our sin debt taken care of, but we need to be given the righteousness of God in order to be seen as righteous in his sight. Um, we read about this in 1 Corinthians 5.21, right? That God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This righteousness is vital. And that's what took place at the resurrection. He was raised for our justification so that we might be declared righteous. And um, we could say that the cross, at the cross, uh, we see the, the commencement of salvation. That's when salvation begins. And at the resurrection, we see the, the consummation of salvation. So both the cross and the resurrection are absolutely vital to our salvation. We cannot be saved apart from the cross of Christ. We cannot be saved apart from the resurrection of Christ. And last week, as we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, 4, uh, we saw that Paul was highlighting Jesus' burial as well, that he was uh, crucified for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and resurrected the third day according to the scriptures. And this was to highlight and to verify the fact that Jesus was in fact dead. So um, there was a, a point in Paul emphasizing the fact that he was buried. And we can see the same thing uh, in regards to the resurrection when we see that Jesus appeared to all these different groups of people. Jesus didn't have to appear to these people in order for us to be saved, but he did so to verify the fact that he did rise from the dead, and he did uh, provide for us this justification from the dead. So let's go ahead and, and read our passage, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to start back in verse 1 of chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, <clears throat> and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So here, once again, we see uh, that Jesus' resurrection was verified. Four times in these verses, verses 5 to 8, we read this phrase that he appeared. He appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. He appeared to the five hundred and the disciples. He appeared to James. And then verse 8, Paul says, and he appeared also to me. So Paul is really emphasizing this fact that Jesus appeared, that he showed himself to these different individuals, these different groups, to verify the fact that he has raised, he was raised from the dead. And what Jesus did during these appearances is vital to understand who Jesus is and what he wanted to uh, portray to those that he appeared to. 
Jesus didn't just appear for a second at a distance as some kind of uh, vague person. Oh, is that, is that Jesus out there? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, Jesus engaged in prolonged dialogue with these people. I think of Luke 24 and the, the disciples that he chatted with on the road to Emmaus. That was a long conversation. Uh, he was there. He was with them. Jesus, he sat down. He ate fish with the disciples in John 21. He still performed miracles as he had before his death and his resurrection. These fish that they were eating on, um, they were provided by Christ telling the disciples, well, drop your net, right? Just like he had earlier in John. Um, when the disciples were gathered together in, in John chapter 20 in the upper room, behind locked doors, Jesus just showed up miraculously, right? Um, Jesus showed his hands and his feet to his disciples. Uh, Doubting Thomas came up and, and put his finger in the wounds that Jesus still had from when he was crucified. Jesus wasn't some kind of amorphous figure that wasn't tangible, that wasn't able to relate and communicate with his disciples. He appeared with them to show them that his resurrection was in fact from God. It was verified. Um, wasn't just an empty tomb, but it was an empty tomb with a living Savior. And we need to understand that he didn't only appear to these people just for the simple fact of verification, but also for proclamation to tell these people that he had conquered death. God is a, a personal God. He is a relational God. And we see him here relating with individuals whom he loved and he cared about. We see that the first person that is mentioned as being appeared to in verse 5 is Cephas. Uh, that is Peter, right? Simon Peter, the same Simon Peter who on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he neglected to, to stay awake and to pray with Jesus. Remember, he asked him several times, just, just stay awake with me just for an hour. Let's, let's pray together. Jesus knowing what he was about to go through. And Peter, arguably his best friend on earth, uh, was falling asleep, right? And Jesus knew that would happen ahead of time. Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him. Again, on that very night that he was betrayed, Jesus was denied by his best friend on multiple occasions. He said, I don't know that man. He swore by an oath that he didn't know who Jesus was. He got angry and upset because he was being identified with Jesus. This Peter, this Cephas, who had denied Jesus, who had failed to stay awake with him, was, is identified here as the first one that Jesus came and appeared to. Um, we, again, going back to John 21, we can read that Jesus, when he talked to him on, on the beach, he said, Peter, go in and feed my sheep. Go and tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. Take care of them. Jesus wanted to let Peter know that all was forgiven, that it was the risen Lord of the universe who was before him and that he was there um, to, to offer peace, to offer reconciliation before Peter, before Cephas. Now, it's kind of interesting. We read in Mark 16, 9 that it was actually uh, Mary who Jesus first revealed himself to, Mary and the women at the tomb. And there aren't, aren't mentioned here in this discourse that we get from Paul and Thomas Schreiner, he suggests that Paul skips over these appearances to the women because he's appealing to witnesses who were accepted by contemporary Roman society, that he wants to, to build up Christ's resurrection. He wants to 
um, speak to these people in a way, again, so as to verify the resurrection of Christ, so to um, exalt the fact that Jesus was raised. And so he points to people like Peter, who now by this point in 55, 56 AD was a leader in the church. He was recognized as somebody who was trustworthy and reliable. Paul says that uh, Jesus appeared to, to Cephas. He goes on, he says, and then to the twelve. Now, if you guys are you know, quick on your feet, you might recognize, okay, well, there, by this point, wouldn't be twelve disciples, right? Because Judas, who had betrayed him, he had already left. And at some point within this whole uh, dialogue, uh, he, had, he had committed suicide. And so he for sure wasn't there. And most people think that what Paul is referring to here when he's talking about uh, Jesus referring to the twelve is talking about John chapter 20 when, again, they were still in the upper room, they were cowering and they were afraid. And at that point, not only was Judas not there, but Thomas wasn't there as well. Remember that Thomas missed the first appearance of the Lord. He was out somewhere else. And so when Paul's referring to the 12 here, he's referring to the group of the disciples as a, a title describing their office. And once again, these disciples, they were cowering in fear, locked in this upper room, and Jesus goes and he appears to them. And this appearance completely changes all of history. This appearance gives and energizes these cowering, scared disciples with the boldness to go out to preach the gospel and to take it out of Jerusalem into Samaria and Judea into the uttermost parts of the world because they had seen the risen Lord. Jesus appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. And then, uh, as I mentioned in John chapter 20, Jude, or Thomas wasn't there. And in John 20, 26 through 29, we read about a, a second appearance when Thomas was there. And this is when Thomas makes his great confession about Jesus. And he says, my Lord and my God, you are my Lord, you are my God, when he actually felt. And Jesus says, well, You've seen because you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And it's this appearance that um, is likely what Paul is referring to later on in verse 7 when he says that he appeared to all the apostles. So he appeared to them with Thomas. He appeared to them without Thomas. Jesus was making himself known, verifying his resurrection, proclaiming his, uh, his victory over death and the grave. And then we see in verse 6 that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. That is, again, quite a bit different from just appearing to 12 scared men in an upper room who people have said throughout all of history, well, maybe they are just getting together and they're colluding, they're talking up this story and coming up with this, this story that they want to present before the world. Well, Paul here says, no, Jesus appeared not only to those scared men who were definitely biased, right? They had followed him for three years. They were invested. Jesus also appeared to 500 men all at one time. This is vitally important because he's saying most of these guys, they still remain. They're still around. Remember, this is only 55, 56 AD. Jesus had passed away in uh, 33 AD about. So this is 20, 25 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. And he's saying most of them are still alive. You can go and you can ask them yourself. These are firsthand eyewitnesses of the death and resurrection of Christ. They saw him after he was hung on the cross, after he was buried and 
resurrected from the dead. Go and ask them. Go and talk to them. This is verifiable. This is the truth. This is not, as some have suggested, a hallucination. People don't have a hallucination with other people. You can't have 500 people seeing the same thing at the same time. That's not true. Um, Paul is speaking to the fact that Jesus most certainly rose from the dead. And then he says, while some of them, most of them remain, some have fallen asleep. And those who had fallen asleep, they were still awaiting their resurrection from the dead. And we'll get to that momentarily. Uh, He mentions after these 500 in verse 7 that he appeared to James also. Now, this James here is distinguished from the twelve. So it's not believed that he is the the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, one of the disciples, nor that he is James the Lesser, the son of Alphaeus, one of the other 12 disciples. But it's believed that this James that Paul is talking about, who Jesus appeared to, is the brother of Jesus, the brother who at one point was an unbelieving brother, who disavowed Jesus and the fact that he was God, the fact that he was uh, the Messiah. We read in John 7, 5 that not even his brothers believed in him. And this is the same James who was to become a leader in the church in uh, Acts 15. He was the one who was overseeing the Jerusalem council and really calling the shots. He was a leader in the church. And Jesus came and he appeared to him. Uh, These two individuals that we see so far in this passage, James and Peter, they're the only two mentioned by name, and they both denied Christ uh, during his ministry. Again, Peter at the end of his ministry, and James all throughout the whole ministry of Christ, they denied Jesus. And back again shortly after 33 AD, to round out this spiritually motley crew, right? They were not the, the people that you would think, okay, well, if, if I want to talk about these giants of the faith, I'm going to point to James who denied Christ all of his life. I'm going to point to Peter who ended out uh, his ministry with Christ by denying him. Uh, and Paul rounds out this motley crew by appealing to himself. Um, in verses 8 through 11, we see Paul's apostleship is verified. And he adds himself to this list of those who Jesus appeared to after his death and resurrection. Verse 8, Paul says, And last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared to me also. And then he goes on talking about himself as an apostle. He says, I am the least of the apostles, and I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. And so, again, from a a worldly perspective, Paul is choosing these people who had, by the point of 55-56 AD, they had become leaders within the church. James and Peter and even Paul himself, they were leaders. And so they would uh, carry weight with those who were doubting the resurrection of Christ. But back in 33-34 AD, right after the, the death and resurrection of Christ, these guys were not the, the spiritually elite leaders that they had later become 20-25 years later. And... Um, Back in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, 
we read about how God had chosen the weak things of the world to shame the wise. And these three weak individuals had later become uh, these leaders within the church. So when Paul speaks in verse 8 of himself as one who is untimely born, he is identifying himself as distinct and unique from the rest of the apostles. The rest of the apostles, they had walked with Christ. They had witnessed his ministry for those three years that he ministered from the time of his baptism up until the time of his death and resurrection. And this was in Acts 1 presented as one of the qualifications for being an apostle. And Paul had not underwent that that same kind of uh, close connection with Jesus as the rest of the apostles. And so he presents himself here as one who is untimely born, one who is unique in his uh, association with Christ and in how he saw this risen Christ. He did, in fact, see the risen Christ. We read about that back in Acts chapter 9 as he is on his way to Damascus to persecute and to kill these, these Christians, to imprison the believers of Christ, the, the bride of Christ. And Jesus comes and he wakes him up, so to speak. He first blinds him and then opens his eyes and said, why are you persecuting my church? And this is the, the first of Paul's, or at that point Saul's, encounter with Jesus, the, the risen Christ. I want to read for us in Galatians chapter 1. And here we can read an account of Paul talking about his experience with Christ and how he got his information directly from Christ and not from men. In Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11, Paul says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to men, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, had called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And so there Paul is identifying, I'm not just making up this gospel, it's not my own gospel, I wasn't taught it by men, but Jesus Christ himself revealed himself to me and showed me this gospel. I saw the risen Lord, and this is what he's referring to in 1 Corinthians 15. And it is suggested and believed that um, when it says in verse 17 of Galatians 1 that he went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus, that during this time he may have had more interaction, more encounter with the Lord, where he was studying and uh, becoming more familiar with the Lord. In that next verse, verse 18, it says that it wasn't for another three years that he went up to Jerusalem. And in Galatians 2.1, it says that it was uh, 14 years before he actually began his ministry with Barnabas. So Paul spent some uh, 14 years uh, with, with Christ and engaging with the, the doctrines of Christ after seeing the, the resurrected Lord himself. So Paul was one who was untimely born. He was still an apostle, but he was a, a unique sort of apostle, and he recognized that himself. 
um, referring to himself as the last of all whom, whom Christ had appeared to, uh, one who was untimely born. In Ephesians 3.8, Paul kind of follows the same line of thinking. He identifies himself as Paul, the very least of all of the saints. Paul had this understanding that he was, uh, he was unique. Paul had this humility about him that was absolutely unique, realizing his vile past, his persecution of the church, and all these wicked, evil things that, that he had done against Christ, against his bride. Um, but he didn't discount his past. Um, his past also didn't discount his apostleship. Paul realized that he was a wicked sinner who had persecuted the church, but he was still an apostle of Christ who was to be used by Christ to go out and to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And lest we, we think any less of Paul and his apostleship, he tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven five. he says, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. So just because he was one who was untimely born, just because he was unique in his apostleship, doesn't make him any less authoritative to be able to speak on behalf of God, doesn't make him any less of an apostle than the other apostles who did walk with Jesus through all of his ministry, who did see him in his resurrection uh, more sooner than Paul saw Christ in his resurrected state. Paul was still an apostle who spoke authoritatively of Christ, and uh, he was an apostle who was just steeped in this humility. Remember, Jesus said that um, those who've been forgiven much love much, and I think we can see that pretty clearly with Paul, that Paul had been forgiven a, a great amount, and he loved Christ in return a great amount. I want to share with you a, a quote here from Matthew Henry, speaking about Paul. He says that the more Paul labored and the more good he did, the more humble he was in his opinion of himself, and the more disposed to own and magnify the favor of God towards him, his free and unmerited favor. No, a humble spirit will be very apt to own and magnify the grace of God. A humble spirit is commonly a gracious one. Where pride is subdued, there it is reasonable to believe that grace reigns. And Paul absolutely imbibed that. He was uh, one of the most humble men to ever, ever walk this earth. And that was displayed in his apostleship and his love for the saints, his love for the church. And... Uh, just to, to offer a, a pretty stark contrast, I wanted to share with you a quote I read this week from a man that we don't often quote in this church, um, a man who doesn't imbibe that same kind of humility that Paul imbibed. In this next quote, uh, this man says, Come on, ye prosecutors, ye false swearers, all hell boil over. Ye burning mountains, roll down your lava, for I will come out on top at last. I have more to boast of than ever any man had. Ooh. I am the only man who has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. A large majority of the whole have stood by me. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. I boast that no man ever did such a work as I. The followers of Jesus ran away from him, but the Latter-day Saints never ran away from me yet. That's from Joseph Smith in the History of the Church, Volume 6, page 408. Uh, it's a, 
a stark contrast from the humility of Paul. Paul's humility is something that we should exemplify, something that sets him apart and that we should seek to imbibe ourselves. Paul acknowledges the grace of God not only in saving him initially from his sin, but also in sanctifying him in his life of godliness. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Again, despite what he had done in persecuting the church, despite what he had done in coming up against Christ himself, Paul realized that those things were being used by God for his glory. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Paul was saved not just initially by God, but he was sanctified by God. He was still responsible for this sanctifying work within him. Even though it was God who was doing the work, it was God's power who was working within Paul. Paul was responsible, and he went through great lengths. He said that he labored even more than all of them. And we can read about that in the book of Acts, looking at Paul's missionary journeys and all that he went through in going on his travels and sharing the grace of God and preaching the gospel of Christ with city after city and people after people going first into the synagogues and then into the homes and sharing this truth that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And all the while he was providing for himself, making tents on the side so that he wouldn't have to uh, inconvenience any of the churches he was going to. He didn't charge them for preaching the gospel to them. He was providing his own way Again, all the while writing letters back to these churches that he had gone to, trying to build them up and encourage them, trying to edify them in their walk so that he could disciple them along the way and grow them up into, uh, into the head who is Christ. He wanted to build them up into the people that they were to be, all the while praying for them. We can read in Romans and 1 Corinthians, Galatians, all over the place, Paul says, I pray for you constantly, or I remember you constantly in my prayers at all times. He was a faithful shepherd. He was a faithful servant. He worked even more than all of them, uh, coordinating between the different churches and where he was going to put Timothy and Titus and uh, Epaphroditus, all these different people. Paul was working and striving uh, for the, the building up of the body of Christ, for the building up of the church. And he says at the end of 10, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Paul was exemplary in his humility, in his realizing and acknowledging God's grace within his life. And all this time, Paul's priority is in the salvation of others. He didn't go out and do all these things because he wanted some kind of recognition from God. He didn't go out and do all these things because he wanted to gain a, a certain standing before the Lord, but he did this for those that he was ministering to. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. We saw this same thing last week in 15, 1 and 2, that uh, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, and which you also received. This was the, the life blood of, of Paul. That was his very mission is to preach and to see people receive that, that gospel message and to believe in that gospel message. And back there in verse 1, he used that, that word preach in the past tense. But here in verse 11, he uses it in the present tense. He says, so we preach. 
And so you believe. So he's going and he is preaching wherever he's at, continually proclaiming the truth of the gospel. That word for preach is the verb form of the gospel, the good news, uh, euangelion, that he is going out and he is sharing this good news of the gospel with everybody that he comes into contact with. He was always preaching the same gospel wherever he was at. His gospel didn't change no matter the city, no matter the group that he was preaching to. It was always about Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And we see that it wasn't only him that was preaching this same gospel, but all those who were with him, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. This same gospel was being proclaimed by all these apostles who were going out. This was their mission. This was their job to proclaim the truth of Christ. And again, we see the humility of Paul shining forth, that he was not proud. He wasn't selfish. He didn't insist on being the, the only tool that God was using, but he wanted to exalt this message, not himself. Um, going back to, again, the first chapter of this book of 1 Corinthians in verses 10 through 12. Uh, I want to remind you of this context into which Paul was preaching, how they were so divided. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. He was exhorting them to this because that's not what they were doing. But that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And Paul here is commending them, or condemning them for how they were being divided, and commending them to be unified in Christ. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, he is saying, whether it was I or anybody else, we went out and we were preaching the gospel. That was his ultimate concern, that the gospel be preached. And I love in Philippians 1, Paul is talking about how there were some who were preaching Christ with wrong motives. He says that they were doing it somehow to, to offend Paul or to get at Paul. I don't understand what their thinking was there, that by preaching the gospel, they were going to somehow slight Paul. But his response, he says in verse 18 of Philippians 1, he says, well, what then? So what? What's my response? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. That was Paul's ultimate goal. His ultimate concern is that the gospel be preached. And he didn't care who did it. He didn't care how it happened. Even if it was by people who were trying to slight and hurt him, his rejoicing was in the fact that Christ is proclaimed, that he is preached. And so we see this whole chapter, if you haven't realized, is about resurrection. I told my kids that on the way home from church last week, that when you think about 1 Corinthians 15, you need to think resurrection, all right? 1 Corinthians 15 equals resurrection. So he starts off talking about this gospel, talking about the resurrection, talking about how this resurrection was verified through all these many appearances of Christ, talking about how even he himself is verified as apostle because Christ has revealed himself to him in his resurrection. And then in these last set of verses, verses 12 through 14, uh, we're going to look at whether or not Christianity is verified. It's as if Paul is going to call out these Corinthians and us by extension to ask us, is our faith, is our salvation verified? 
Uh, later on in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he tells us to test our salvation to see whether or not we are in the faith. And it seems as if he's doing that same thing for the Corinthians here in these last verses. Let me read verses 12 through 14. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Now remember back in verse 1 of this chapter, we saw that they did receive this gospel that Paul preached. He said, I preached to you, I proclaimed to you, and you believed, you received it, they accepted it. And so they did believe in the resurrection of Christ. What they were doing is they were denying this general idea of resurrection, that there is no resurrection from the dead for, for them or from, for anybody else. And um, Paul is, is pointing out the, the inconsistency in their thinking on this idea of resurrection. This was a majority position of the day that people don't rise from the dead, right? Just like today, people say, well, dead men don't rise, right? That's anti-quote-unquote scientific. Uh, dead men don't rise from the dead. And that was the, the idea of the day as well. Again, Thomas Schreiner said that pagans in the Greco-Roman world typically rejected a physical uh, resurrection. They didn't rise from the dead. They didn't believe that people, that men rose from the dead. The Greek philosophers of the day, remember these guys in Corinth, they were so caught up in this worldly philosophy. And these proto-Gnostics taught that, once again, dead men don't rise. They had this idea that the flesh was evil, the flesh was bad. And so God wouldn't allow that to be resurrected. Uh, a misconception of the day that it seems like the Corinthians were kind of grasping onto and they were, um, they were adding into their own theology, their own understanding of the resurrection. And then, of course, we know of, from Scripture, a religious group uh, who didn't believe in the resurrection, of the Sadducees who denied the resurrection. And I want to read to you a, a couple of quotes here from Josephus. This first quote is from Antiquities 13.173, if that means anything to you. And he says there, And for the Sadducees, they take away fate, and they say there is no such thing, and that the events of human affairs are not at all, are not at its disposal. But they suppose that all our actions are in our power, so that we ourselves are the cause of what is good, and whatever and we receive what is evil of our own folly. And so in that quote, we see uh, that they had a, a different understanding from Paul. Remember, Paul says, whatever I do, I do it by the grace of God, back in uh, verse 10, that I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God was within me. And so the Sadducees, they would disagree with this point. But even further, uh, with this understanding towards the resurrection, uh, this next quote, in Antiquities 18.16, uh, Josephus says, But the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, that souls die with the bodies, nor do they regard the observation of anything besides what the law enjoins them. For they think it an instance of virtue to dispute with those teachers of philosophy whom they frequent. Again, it seems to me like these Sadducees had quite a bit of influence over the Corinthians because they had this idea that uh, whatever they did, it was to their own power. It was by their own doing, not by the works of God. Uh, talks about arguing against philosophers, which once again, the Corinthians were all about, and questioning this idea of the resurrection. 
So, once again, this was a majority position of the day, that there is no resurrection from the dead, a majority position that the Corinthians themselves had embraced. They were embracing this false teaching. And Paul comes up and he wants to question them and, and point out the inconsistencies within their thinking. He is getting presuppositional on them. He is stepping into their worldview and saying, okay, well, that's what you believe. Let me take that premise. Let me take that, that belief and follow it through to its logical conclusion. He is reasoning with them from their own position um, and pointing out the, the incongruous confession of their faith because they believe Jesus rose from the dead, but yet there is no resurrection. And so Paul, uh, four times throughout this passage in verse 12, 13, 15, and 16, he is stressing that if the dead are not raised, then Christ isn't raised. You can't have one and not the other. Uh, what's true of one is necessarily true of the other. If you believe in a resurrection, then you believe in Christ's resurrection. If you say that there is no resurrection, what you are doing is denying Christ. And that is not a Christian position. That is not a position that you can hold cohesively with the, the orthodox teaching of the Bible. In doing so, they would be denying the, the Old Testament that Martha so firmly believed in. When she said, yes, Christ, I, I believe that in the last day at the resurrection, he will be raised. They would be denying all of the... the resurrections in the Old Testament by Elijah and Elisha. They would be denying the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament. They would be denying Paul himself, who once again, back in verse 15, 1 said, or chapter 15, 1 said that uh, this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he rose again, according to the scriptures. They would be calling Jesus himself a liar, because Jesus is the one who called forth Lazarus. Jesus is the one who said, you destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it again. So to deny the resurrection, even if it's just a, a general idea of resurrection, they are ultimately denying the resurrection of Christ and denying Christianity. It's not a position that is consistent with Christianity. In verse 14, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also in vain. The resurrection is so closely connected with Christianity that Christianity cannot exist without it. He is pointedly saying right here that we as Christians hold on to this doctrine, this truth of resurrection so firmly that if it can be disproved, there is no Christianity. This is our self-proclaimed kryptonite as Christians, right? And we know that Superman doesn't go around advertising his weakness, advertising his kryptonite, right? And yet Paul is pointing people to this and saying, if the resurrection isn't true, if this can be disproven, then uh, everything that we believe in crumbles. Everything falls and is shattered. Now, of course, people have tried that throughout history. All kinds of atheists and, and God-haters have come up and they've tried to disclaim this resurrection. They've taken up the challenge from Paul, so to speak, and they have failed horribly in being able to do so. Um, but that's not what, what Paul is getting at. He's not trying to present something for, for unbelievers to shoot at. He's not presenting a target to say, here, come and attack this. This is attackable in some way because there is no weakness in the resurrection. This, it isn't a kryptonite, so to speak. Um, I think of Jeremiah 31, where the Lord says that if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth can be searched out, 
At that point, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. Well, the heavens above aren't going to be searched out. They're not going to be measured. The depths of the sea, they'll never be searched out. Um, and God will never set aside his chosen people. And in the same way, the resurrection of Christ stands. So Paul is, again, not presenting a target for unbelievers to shoot at, but he is uh, directing this to Corinth and letting them know your faith is inconsistent with uh, this truth that you are holding on to, this doctrine that you are holding on to, saying that there is no resurrection. Four times he connects the two. The resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of his saints are tied together when they cannot be separated from one another. And just to make sure that he isn't uh, presenting this as some kind of feasible option that Christ had not in fact been raised, look with me down at verse 20 where Paul puts an exclamation point on this and he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead and he himself is the first fruits of all those who are asleep. That is all those who are awaiting their resurrection. Paul is saying Christ has been raised and we will be raised either to eternal life or to eternal death based upon what we have done with Christ and this gospel that he has presented before us in the first four verses of the chapter. If we reject the resurrection and we reject this gospel that he is proclaiming, that he has died, that he has been buried, he has raised for, from the dead for us, for our sin, for our justification according to the scripture. We cannot pick and choose what doctrines we believe. The Corinthians couldn't pick and choose and just lay aside this doctrine of the resurrection because they were appealing to the, the modern consensus of the day and saying, well, that, that doesn't make sense. Dead men don't rise. Well, if God says that dead men rise and dead men will be raised, then we need to take God at his word and we need to trust God for what he says. So just like the Corinthians, you and I cannot pick and choose what doctrines to hold on to, what doctrines to believe. We need to take God at his word and believe him. We need to, like Paul, humble ourselves and realize that we are not the standard of truth. We're not the ones who get to say, well, that doesn't make sense to me, so I'm going to leave that doctrine there. But I want to take all this other stuff. If God says it, then we need to believe it. We need to embrace it and guide our lives by it. We must be willing to identify the inconsistencies in our own doctrine, which can be difficult sometimes, right? It can be uncomfortable to say, I was wrong, and to submit ourselves to the authority of the Word, to the authority of the Bible, because outside of the Bible... We will have no objective standard to say this is truth, this is right, versus this is wrong, and this is what we need to avoid. Let us not be like the Corinthians who tried to uh, pick and choose different theologies, different doctrines, a la carte, like they were the absolute standard. But let us submit wholeheartedly to every word that God has spoken to us in his holy, infallible word. Let's pray. God, we thank you again, for the fact that you have preserved your word for us. There are many, many men and women who went before us who didn't have the access to your word that we have today. God, help us to, to truly understand the blessing that we have in being able to, to look into your word and being able to study in and dive into your word and to have these, these connections made for us that previous generations were unable to, to see. God, I thank you for the saints that 
that gather here for your church. I pray that you would help us to encourage one another, to lift up one another, to edify and build up your body so that we can be uh, better prepared, better equipped to be set apart for you, that we would be ready and willing to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, that we would be men and women who can look to your truth and we can say with assurance that we believe in that, that Christ did indeed die for us. He was buried and he was resurrected again for our justification. I pray that we would have a, a confidence in your salvation, that if there are any here who, today who don't know who you are, that you would draw them to yourself, you would open up their eyes, and that you would uh, bring them into your kingdom of light and adopt them as your own. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.